Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. All tied up with this story between a morning talk show and the president of the united states buck sexton here with you all now team buck welcome to the freedom hut freestyle friday is here um i think other than the i've got all kinds of topics in mind for today um but in, in terms of the uh the, the news cycle driven agenda items we have today right the things that are getting all the attention uh, i think we're going to start because it's just where everyone is still fixated uh, with w- what is in many ways a a an unimportant story that has just fascinated the country's capture attention the feud between Trump and Morning Joe so that's going on, on the one hand and then there's on the other hand a much uh much more important much more serious story about a uh, a little infant boy in the United Kingdom and the decisions made by the authorities in the UK, as well as by a European Commission court, that uh, tells us some very troubling things about the modern state, even a modern state that is a close friend and ally of the United States. Uh, and we see some of those uh, similar mentalities at work in our own country when it comes to government and how the government approaches the uh, people whom it is uh, supposed to serve. Uh, instead of feeling like the people serve the government, but first let's start with this with the the, the tabloidy stuff because everyone is. I I wish I could entirely avoid it. I really I went home last night. I was still thinking about much of the discussion that we had had on the show because I was I was very interested to hear a lot of people calling in who are Trump supporters. And they they differ on this one, but some people are just completely all in on Trump saying whatever he wants to say to Mika and Joe, uh, who are these hosts at over at MSNBC. And it, it got even, well, a, another layer added to it today, another chapter, you could say, added into this whole saga. Um, and you have Donald Trump. Uh, well, let's let's actually start with the Mika and Joe part of this, shall we? And by the way, it's Friday, so if you have thoughts on this that you couldn't get in yesterday, uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Do, am I making this sound less important than it is? If I can tell you this. If it wasn't a Friday, I'd probably push this story off to the side, but I feel like you know we're heading off into the weekend. Um, why not just get throw down get into this scrum this fight over uh trump and the, and the media i mean this is a but see this is personal right this is different than calling cnn fake news i was all i'm all on board for calling out the media that's fine this is clearly a trump versus joe scarborough trump versus mika brzezinski 
uh, situation here, right? So anyway, if you have thoughts on this 844-900-BUCK, uh, and also, by the way, if you want to call and be like, Buck, please, anything anything but this topic for more than a segment or two, that's that's all, not, anything else, rather, after a segment or two on this, that's fine as well. So here's how it went uh, today. You had, and there aren't a lot of major policy agenda items to talk about today because D.C. shuts down, right? DC, everyone's heading off for the July weekend. This year in particular, you have Monday and Tuesday uh, off for a lot of folks. So, and I mean, on Congress is like never working. So that's always keep that, keep that in mind. Um, <laughs> earlier today, though, Trump, uh, oh no, I was, yeah, I'll start with Trump Twitter and then we'll get it. Yeah, I'm trying to pick which side to go with first here because I don't want to seem like I'm unfairly uh, contextualizing this, this feud, this, uh, this great spat between the two parties. Uh, watch low-rated Morning Joe for first time in a long time. Fake news. He called me to stop a National Enquirer article. I said no. Bad show. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I look. I, it is the president of the United States, right? I mean, this is what's this is what is going on here. I'm also someone who has been wrestling recently with how much I think Twitter is. Um, is bad for debate and commentary in a lot of ways. I, I've, at least on Facebook, you can write for as much as you want. And there's, I think the artificial constraints of Twitter means that it's uh, very conducive to the quick, witty quip that is snarky, that is sarcastic. And I know people who excel at it, and so they like it because they feel like it gives them a platform and it's very free form and they can do whatever they want on it and... Uh, although Twitter has kicked people off for their political beliefs in the past. Uh, but I, I find that it just it, it elevates uh, the superficial and political conversations in a way that's not helpful. We, we got enough of that going on all the time with all the blah, blah, blah on cable news and all the rest of it. But OK, that's just my opinion on it. But a, a, a pretty small percentage of people overall in this country, for example, or even on Twitter. I know a lot of you aren't on Twitter and I think it was probably a platform in decline until the president of the United States. I mean, the president of the United States has been better for Twitter than, okay, every single line, by the way, <laughs> no surprise. Every single line is lit up on the show. I had a feeling that, because you want to talk about action movie quotes, right? You don't, it's not about the Trump thing. It's action movie quotes. To totes. Totally. Uh, so the Trump tweeted out, watch low rating Morning Joe for the first time in a long time. Fake news. I told you about that one. Okay. Crime and killing. Oh, no, sorry. That's that's a serious tweet. That's a different tweet. What else did he have here? Uh, there was one more, I thought. Um, nope. That was the only one. Okay. So that was the only one that had to do with Morning Joe. Um, so he's, he's tweeting this stuff out. And here's what he's referring to. You had uh, Mika and Joe this morning. And, you know, these are two co-hosts who made the unusual, even for this business, which is full of... Oh, many personal lives of with all kinds of interesting chapters in them, uh, in the media business in particular. Uh, but I try to leave that stuff out. Um, the Morning Joe host said that Trump tried to blackmail them. Here's what the story is. There was a National Enquirer story coming out about Mika and Joe before they were willing to let the world know about their romance, for which they both left their spouses. Uh and the story that we're being told now is that 
Joe Scar <laughs> people are like want to talk about this of course Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski had been harassed and threatened uh, by the National Enquirer, which has ties to Trump. Trump knows that because of his days in media in New York and dealing with the National Enquirer in the past and all that. So the storyline is that Trump said or Trump had a surrogate tell Mika and Joe, if you go crawling to the president, not literally, but not far off on your hands and knees begging forgiveness they will not run this National Enquirer story. Now I should note, before we just talk about how the National Enquirer is is something you see in uh, grocery stores to talk about how a a baby with the wings of Satan was born in, you know, uh, Arizona over the weekend or something, right? They did break the John Edwards story that no other news outlet would touch that ended John Edwards' political career, that he had a, a child out of wedlock with a woman that he was cheating on his cancer-stricken wife with. National Enquirer did break that story. I'm not saying National Enquirer is not a tabloid and, and writes all kinds of crazy stuff. I just want to point out that occasionally, they and by the way, in this case, they were also going to be running a true story based on what we're told. Here's what Mika and Joe had to say about it, however... We got a call that, hey, the National Enquirer is going to run a negative story against you guys. And it was, um, you know, uh, Donald is friends with, the president is friends with the guy that runs the National Enquirer. And they said, if you call the president up and you apologize for your coverage, uh, then he will pick up the phone and basically spike the story because it explains the relationship and his really strange obsession with this show and in particular it's really disturbing obsession with mika disturbing obsession with mika he says uh strong words now they continued to talk about how this is really about it's not about them right and by the way anytime anyone in the media tells you it's not about me it's about you like the oldest trick in the book for politicians as well it's not that it's never true you should just be skeptical. It's like my rules about politicians, whoever, whenever they say it's for your security or it's for the children, you should be skeptical. You should be like, really? Is that really what it is for? Uh, but they continued on and said that, of course, the country is the real uh, the real victim here. But I am very concerned as to what this once again reveals about the president of the United States. It's strange. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we had so many people saying, hey, hope you're okay, hope you're okay, at calls and texts and, and, and emails. We're okay. The country's not. The country's not. Oh, wow. Oh, man. That's up there with when, when Richard Gere did an infomercial for the Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian Authority election some years ago, and he's like, I'm Richard Gere, and I'm speaking for the whole world when I tell you that you should, uh, we hope that your democracy, blah, 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 whatever, I forget what he, but he was speaking for the world, everybody, Richard Gere, so I just thought you should know. <laughs> oh, man, good times. Uh, so what is there to say on that? I got a few thoughts on this, and I thought more about it after yesterday, and here, here's where I'm, where I'm coming down on this now. I do recall that there was a very cozy relationship between uh, Morning Joe, and I, I use that for Joe and Mika, right? Those those two, uh, the two of them together are Morning Joe, although there's other panelists as well. I rarely watch Morning TV, but occasionally. Okay. So, uh, I remember that there was a very cozy relationship, um, a very 
close media friendship between Trump and this show, which on MSNBC is noteworthy because MSNBC was the Obama administration's favorite network. Uh, they it, it was really a, a an extension of the West Wing on cable TV. That's what MSNBC was. And so for a show to be close with Trump, given how clear it was, and I was at CNN during the election, so I knew that, I mean, the, the, the Trump uh, the Trump hatred was fierce, not just from Democrats, I should add. I mean, the, there are some never-Trumpers who have toned it down a bit, but there were never-Trumpers who were just uh, couldn't spew enough Trump bile. And look, that's that's their right. But I'm just saying there was it was coming from all there was stuff coming from all over the place. Uh, but Morning Joe on MSNBC was kind of cozy with Trump for quite a while. So now to turn around and suggest that Trump is some kind of uh, a maniac who's obsessed, the guy said, obsessed with Mika, to play the oh, woe is us card here for Morning Joe strikes me as a, as a bit disingenuous. Uh, it seems to me that somewhere along the line they either lost their access or the decision was made um, to turn and become harsh on the administration. I will say I stand by my thoughts yesterday about how I, I wish the president wouldn't attack a, a host. Look, I, I w- this is this is really where I come down on this. Okay, Trump's allowed to allowed to, to hit back. He's allowed to hit back hard at the media. I'm all in favor of that. Always have been. And I find it very amusing most of the time. Um, but I don't make fun of, as some little, you know, nobody, I would not make fun of a cable TV host's appearance because of a personal feud. And so I think it's okay to expect that same level of decorum from the president. I'm sorry, but I do. Because it's not, it wasn't necessary. Call it fake news. Say Joe is a liar. Say Mika's, uh, you know, full of it. Say what, but just don't play into that. Um, that's just, that's my opinion. I know some of you say that you don't care at all. That's, you know, this is a very much a subjective area of what is it, what is acceptable discourse in this current political era we are in. All right. I've got a lot of calls. We'll take some of those. Uh, I've also got serious subjects to talk to you about, including the very important case, uh, in the UK right now about this, uh, this baby boy and his parents and what the state has done there. Uh, that's, we're going to be switching gears to talk about that later on. Um, also, uh, we'll be discussing with you a bit about um, another minute. Another another city has adopted a fifteen dollars minimum wage. Uh, we have some regional barbecue discussion to have. I'm going to tell you about how much I hate mosquitoes. We've got a a. Oh, we'll also discuss asteroids for those of you who'd like to look at the stars over the weekend. We have a show that is packed with all kinds of stuff today. But we'll take your calls on this Trump thing when we get back. Stay with me. F-L-F, hey, Michael. Michael in Florida on WFLF. What's going on, sir? We do not. Is is that uh, no? Oh, we do not. We do not have Michael in Florida. Okay, fair enough. Uh, We do have, I think, uh, Don Lemon last night, my old uh, CNN colleague, saying the following. I have to say something before we start. Can we kill the music, please? Kill the music. I have heard and said the phrase, this is not normal, so many times that I'm sick of hearing it and I'm sick of saying it. What the president did today was just flat out gross and disgusting. 
saying it was juvenile would be insulting to children. CNN anchor. There you go. Um, do we do we know if Don Lemon is technically uh, considered an opinion journalist or an anchor? I'm just I'm not just because people like to play this game over there of saying that CNN's all about journalism. I just want to know. You know, there's there's no question when you look at the uh, the lineup over at Fox, right? People would say Brett Baer is a TV journalist. They would say Sean Hannity does opinion, right? I mean, this is this is not hard to figure out. But at CNN, it's like they're all anchors, right? But yet they all have opinions that are pretty much the same, which is Democrat and left wing. So is that just a coincidence or is that just what anchors are supposed to think? I'm just wondering. Uh, and, and in this case, it, it actually at some level, I, I have to say that I uh, agree somewhat uh, with the uh, criticism, not what Don Lemon just said, but with the criticism that, you know, I think Trump went, went a little far with this stuff. And. He's the president. It, it does. It does matter. It does matter. It's not helpful. And I should note. And I know it's a little early to start saying this to people, maybe, but you know, there's a whole party and a whole political movement that will be around long after we have a, a new president. And I am uh, wondering when we start to think about whether there'll be some consequences that are not so great of being in a place where no one within the Republican Party seems to be able to uh, maintain good faith with Trump's most ardent supporters while offering up just a little bit of, of criticism, right? There's the criticism that you that you give when you don't like someone and you want to tear someone or something down, and then there's the criticism you get, you know, the difference between uh, I hate this TV show host, this person shouldn't have a show. That's criticism. But it's also criticism to say to your son at Little League, hey, you know, uh, don't don't try to steal home plate when the shortstops, you know, are just about to catch the ball. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's there's different kinds of criticism. I think we can all agree that there's and I worry that within the the corridors of Trump support, you can't even say, hey, look, I, I, didn't, I didn't like this that much. I still want the wall. I still want the tax reform. I still want Trump to fight back in the media, but this one was a little far for me. That should be okay without uh, people thinking that you somehow have gone soft and are no longer to be trusted. I would hope. Oh, by the way, it's Friday, which means it's action movie quote Friday. Can we please? Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Come to the coast. We get together, have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote Fridays. I got an email from someone asking me what those quotes were. It's it's if it bleeds, we could kill it from Predator, one of the greatest action movies of all time. Uh, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger saying it. Uh, then. Uh, come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs. Bruce Willis in the when he's in the air conditioning duct in Die Hard, and then Free Your Mind, which is Morpheus in The Matrix, which is also one of the great action movies of all time. I think we're gonna switch out the quotes um, pretty soon, so I wanted to get that uh, out there. Um, team, we've got much more. I'll be back with you in just a few minutes. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Easy, fellas. Hey, fellas. Fellas, easy. Fellas, easy. 
You guys are getting worse. They knocked the table down. It's actually a very friendly press. Don't let that get you. Although we just lost the table. There's Trump uh, having a discussion earlier today with uh, the, I believe it was the uh, premier of South Korea, uh, talking about the press and the media. Uh, so I'm a, a little more on this than I promise we're moving on. And I might not even make it all the way through this uh, segment without moving on. Because I, I think I think we kind of have done it. Uh, I don't know really what more there is to say at this point. Um, although I did skip over one thing, and I, I believe that if I'm going to talk about this, I have to, um, in fairness, address this part of the uh, the issue. And that is that the Washington Post today, which, as we know, has been uh, angling from the very beginning of the Trump presidency to destroy the Trump presidency, published a piece by uh, Joe Scarborough and... Mika Brzezinski. By the way, Joe Scarborough is one of these people who I, I know he's been around a long time. I know he's a congressman. Um, I, I His uh, success in media is not something that I could ex, I could explain. Uh, so there's that. I, I don't know him. It's not personal. I'm not trying to be mean. And, you know, he maybe knows some things I don't know because he's uh, paid many millions of dollars to do a or I'm sure it's many millions, but millions of dollars to do a TV show on MSNBC where he basically shows up in a sweatshirt and is like, so who wants to talk about the uh, headlines today? So, I mean, that's nice. Uh, It's good work if you can get it, for sure. But uh, he wrote a piece in the the Washington Post, or someone helped him write a piece, by Mika and Joe Brzezinski. I assume their staffs were involved in this, but maybe not. I mean, Joe Joe writes. And he's done some stuff. I I saw a debate with him with uh, Paul Krugman back in the day I thought he did a very good job, although all he was really doing was saying to Paul Krugman, so what you used to say, you're saying something else. And Krugman's like, well, I mean, you know, it's you know, I mean, it's Joe. It's not fair what you're doing. Yeah. And there's a lot of that with Paul Krugman. And I thought Joe Scarborough did a good job there. So I, I'm not somebody who I, I try not to have really deep personal feelings about anyone who's on TV. I just some of them, I think, do a better job than others. Some of them are more insightful than others. Uh, Morning Joe, I, t- to me, it's it reminds me, it's like a show, but it's it's almost like a show where you're, you'd have a more interesting conversation often going on wherever you work across the country at the, at the water cooler or just, you know, hanging out in the boardroom or wh- wherever, right? I just, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, that show comes on. I was like, why do people, oh, but they got the big Starbucks sponsorship. People like it. All right. Anyway. So they wrote in the Washington Post, uh, and they're going really after him. They're saying Donald Trump is not well. I mean, they're they're saying the president's crazy. So this needs to be taken into account if we're going to discuss this feud further. Uh, they write that uh, President Trump launched personal attacks against us Thursday, but our concerns about his unmoored behavior go far beyond the personal. America's leaders and allies are asking themselves yet again whether this man is fit to be president. We have our doubts, but we are both certain the man is not mentally equipped to continue watching our show, Morning Joe. The president's unhealthy obsession with our show has been in the public record for months, and we are seldom surprised by his nasty tweets about us. And then he goes on and on, and it's more of what, uh, nothing. The only thing that was really new from today, other than this op-ed in the Washington Post, which I think it's interesting the Washington Post runs this editorial. Uh, it's not surprising, but... There's nothing new here. This is just this is just giving an even bigger platform for Joe Scarborough to to uh, hit back at the president. 
let's not pretend like you know Joe Scarborough is just some private citizen who doesn't have uh, obviously a large following and a, and a major media platform with which to uh, take on the president. And he has all of the media backing him up too. For the mo- I mean, not all of it, but a vast majority of it. He ta- they take some cheap shots at uh, Fox and Friends in here. I know that's that's a new a new common tactic to talk about Fox and Friends as a um, well, you know that they're far too friendly to the administration. So what is there really to be said about this that hasn't already been said either by me on this show or, or somewhere else? Uh, not, not a whole lot. I think we'll pass through this uh, over the course of the holiday weekend. Uh, I think that the president's going to continue to be who he is. By the way, the notion that he's not fit to be president, uh, he's fit to be president. The American people voted him to be president. Unless the Congress decides to remove him from office, his, his fitness for the presidency is not really uh, something to... To uh, well, I mean, you can question it certainly, but it's it's really irrelevant if someone thinks you're not fit to be the president. If you win enough of votes, you are the president, uh, and so that's where we are. And I think you could look back at some previous presidencies and say, well, the fact that America thought that guy was, and I don't have to fill in names here, that that guy was a great idea for president uh, does not speak well to the judgment of a, of roughly half the country, depending on which situation, which presidency we're talking about. Um, but this is uh, uh, largely. This is interesting for some. Others find it very entertaining. Others, I think, are quite dismayed by it all. It's a distraction, mostly from what matters. Um, and I, I wish there was more to get into than that. I, I, I know that some uh, hosts on radio are fond of really rolling up their sleeves and getting nasty about people, and that does well for them. I, I I've got other things I would like to talk to you about. So I think we will. We'll move in that direction. In fact, there is the latest installment of the uh, Project Veritas American Pravda series today. And we will talk about a couple of those clips, what they tell us about media coverage. And then uh, maybe I'll update you on a change to uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, even the ride in the next hour that I think is interesting. Uh, And there's that very serious story that I'll talk to you about uh, coming out of the United Kingdom. Uh, so we've got a lot to cover. Um, so with that in mind, 844-900-BUCK. Any thoughts on any of this, let me know. We'll be back in a few minutes. American Pravda. Yes. Yes. There we go. Uh, you will see the undercover video. It can be very depressing. Uh, so here we have more video release from James O'Keefe's Project Veritas outfit and here's um what we know from this uh first of all you have a cnn producer an associate producer which is not a very senior position at all uh but he said the following we all recognize he is a clown that he is hilariously unqualified for this that he's really bad at this and that he does not have america's best interests we recognize his just but it'd be fair to question the intellect of the American voter. Oh, no, they're stupid. <laughs> this is nothing new on the left, by the way, to call the American voter stupid and think that's a smart a smart comment. Uh, Bill Maher does it all the time on his show, and it's always a big laugh line. The American voter is so stupid. It's like, yeah, that's 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 an that's the kind of comment that stupid people laugh at. I mean, that means nothing, right? What, what does that mean? Uh, but this... I, <laughs> You know, I'm I'm feeling like I'm having one of these weeks. It reminds me of when uh, when Ted Cruz and I had supported Ted Cruz in the primary, but when he stood up at the uh, 
Republican National Convention and gave his non-endorsement speech. And I, I had a lot of, uh, on the show at the time I was, I was uh, doing, I had a lot of Ted Cruz supporters. And I said to them, look, I just, I don't, I, I know that, that the, the Ted Cruz supporters wanted to hear that that was, that was principled and it was great. And I remember saying, I was like, I don't like what Senator Cruz did here because I think it looks, it's going to look grandstandy if it doesn't already when he does endorse Trump, which he did end up doing. So why, why do that? Right. Um, and it, and people got very mad at me. I think then that some of them, some of my, my beloved listeners were less mad at me when sure enough, some time passed and Ted Cruz is like, yeah, actually I, I endorsed Donald Trump. It's like, oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad we cleared that up. Um, and I know this week the the two popular positions on the right are that what Trump did is is perfect and you should not criticize it at all, um, and also that the Project Veritas videos are exposing CNN in a way that is uh, uh, that is deeply damaging the network. I'm just telling you, I haven't seen really anything yet from these videos that. Now, keep in mind, I worked at CNN for two years, so I I kind of know what to expect there. I'm I'm, uh, you know, I none of this surprises me, and I've been telling you this more or less for a while. I know video is proof and everything else, but I don't think we should take this too far either. I mean, you've got employees that are sharing uh, in in what they think is an off the cuff and private moment, and I I I gotta say, guys. You know, low-level employees of companies being asked for their political beliefs, and then, and then being uh, publicly um, you know, pilloried in this way to be, you know, attacked and humiliated like this. I know right now it's like, oh well, it's telling us the truth about CNN and Trump cover. But for, does anyone not know that CNN is is vehemently anti-Trump? Is that is that like, are we exposing something that's a surprise here? You really need to have someone at the very top who's talking about coverage decisions, who has the authority to enforce them for this video to have these videos to have the kind of impact that I think O'Keefe and his outfit want it to have because an associate producer. I mean, this is like let me let me just give you a and I know this week to say, oh, CNN, they've got them. They've nailed them. That's what people want to. A lot of people want to hear that. But I tell you the truth. I don't just tell you what I think people in general, what is just popular and they want to hear, especially among those who are in the radio listening audience. Uh, I mean, I'm I've been telling you about what CNN is like for a long time now. Right. We've been hanging out together for gosh, it's been like going on six going on six months here. Um, but I don't think that that's. Uh, well, uh, it's this is not new. The videos are not new um, in, in what they're telling you. I mean, in, in what the overall narratives are. Imagine for a second that we were trying to figure out what's going on on Wall Street and we think there's shady there's shady stuff going on. And like, let's say customers are being treated poorly by Wall Street. Um, imagine that you went up to a, a second year analyst, which is kind of what an associate producer level is, maybe a little higher than that, but... And you did an off and you videotaped him saying, yeah, and Wall Street, you know, Wall Street, you know, screws over Main Street and, uh, you know, is is always doing shady stuff. And then you publicize that. Says, See, we've got, you know, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or whatever it is. We've nailed them. We've nailed them. Well, sure. Major Wall Street firms not speaking about either one of those specifically in this case, but just I was thinking of something off the top of my head. Major Wall Street firms have engaged in shady behavior, have fleeced their customers, have done bad stuff. Okay, sure. 
But does having some lower level person tell you what's obvious and already known in a way that is maybe going to get them fired? Although I will say the first producer was not fired, so but not fired yet. Who know? You know, this is the other part of this too, right? Firing them would make it look like there was some wrongdoing on the part of CNN, so they'll probably have to wait a while. But I would say that it's not good for the career of the individuals in these videos. So it just, you know, if you take it out of the context of the much-hated CNN right now for a lot of conservatives, I think they see my point about, you know, we're using undercover videos here in a way that makes me a little, makes me a little, hmm, makes me a little, hmm. Uh, Vicky in West Virginia on WWVA, I know you want to get in here. What's going on? Oh, Buck, Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say you bring so much class to talk radio. I wait on you all day long. Oh, thank you so much. I try. I try. It's it's some days it's frustrating because I know I can just come in here and pound the desk and talk about how you know MAGA and Trump is awesome 100 percent all the time and and O'Keefe has destroyed CNN. Those things are are you know partially true, mostly true, but not necessarily 100 percent true. Well, you 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 don't have to try hard. You are pure class. Thanks. I do what I can. And I wanted, to, yeah. Well, I wanted to say that I think that President Trump just messes with people's heads. I I think he loves to play games. I think he did it with James Comey when he said, "Gee, I hope there's not tapes." And then he caught him. I mean, the guy was scared to death to lie on the stand. He caught him, and um, it, I think he does it with everybody. He knows that this really irritates uh, the left, and he just messes with them. He definitely so messes with people, and he's been he's been in this laugh. game a long time. By the way, I mean this is a guy who's been through uh, the the ins and outs of dealing with tabloids, and I think he loves the attention. This is a guy who's also he's a reality TV show host, right? He understands the he hmm. understands narrative and news cycle really as as well as anybody, especially when it comes to. Uh, the populism and the, the voice of the masses and, and the sense that people have of what they're seeing and wh- who they believe. So, and this is how the guy became president in large part, right? He understands those right. forces in a, in a, in a very, you know, people are always saying, oh, he's so dumb. He's incurious. When I say people uh, in the media, oh, oh he's no. incurious about the world. I'm like, this is a guy who's pulled off some incredible stuff, most incredible of all, becoming president when when everyone who thought they were experts in politics said it was literally impossible. OK, so as I always say it. He's, he knows something that I don't know and that a lot of people don't know. And he knows a lot of stuff that we don't know because, uh, you know, people say, oh, he, he's got all this money. A lot of people have, you know, Bloomberg was not going to be president, everybody. That guy's got 40 billion dollars. Wasn't going to be president. Wasn't going to happen. Oh, I think he's very smart, and he just loves to mess with people's heads. Just loves to. Yeah, well, I think you're right on that. And, Vicky, thank you for the kind words, and have a great have a great Independence Day weekend. Thank you very much for calling in. Um, all right, so back to the uh, sec- these, the second uh, clip I want to play for you from the American Pravda series. And, look, I, O'Keefe and those guys have done a lot of great work. And I, like I said before uh, yesterday, I'm not trying to be the guy who— sits here and says well you know they didn't get they didn't re- they didn't get the goods you know they're not they're not working hard enough or something I'm obviously not saying that but this is not what some people are running with this I see this on the right people are running with this on Twitter and maybe one day I'll have the discussion with you all there are people that I know know better and they don't think highly enough of their audience whether on radio or TV or writing to be honest with them uh 
there are some people out there on the right, and and I and I know some of them, and they're just not honest with their audience about what they really think because they'd rather just tell they'd rather just say what they think most of the audience wants to hear because why ratings and money and if you reach a certain point in this business and you have enough money and enough reach and enough enough influence and especially if you've been in the game a long time and you're set for life and so it's not it shouldn't be about the money anymore doesn't doesn't integrity matter more doesn't standing for principle matter more shouldn't being a constructive force in american politics right now uh, matter more than the next quarter or the next week or the next day's ratings. I just, I, I, I pose that to you, those of you that are big consumers of uh, conservative media. Um, but back to O'Keefe and what they've done here. Oh, sorry. Uh, play clip uh, 82, please. CNN, it's an impartial, right? Do they, what's the view of Trump in, in like the kind of media circle? On the inside, we all recognize he is a clown, that he is hilariously un unqualified for this, that he's really bad at this, and that he does not have America's best interests. We recognize he's just crazy. Because we actually had uh, that awful woman, Kellyanne Conway, you know, the blonde... Who's, who's sorry, Kellyanne who? Conway. What's she look like? The, is she the one with she the... She looks like she had a shovel. She looks like she had a shovel. So this guy's a jerk. Okay, he's a jerk. He's saying he's saying jerk things. He also doesn't think he's saying anything that's going to be publicized. And as we all walk around with microphones and video cameras on us all the time, I just I think we should be cautious about how much we want to run around and erase all boundaries of person-to-person -person expectation of privacy uh, without really good journalistic reason. I, I don't know that this is. I think this is. I'm just telling you, everybody. I think this is borderline. Um, anyway, I, it doesn't tell us anything new either. I got to talk to you about that story out of the UK coming up. Stay with me. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. A terminally ill baby boy named Charlie Gard uh, has been given some more time, um, but time is still running short for him. He is a 10-month-old boy in the UK who was born with a condition, an incredibly rare uh, genetic condition called infantile onset encephalomyopathic mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, or MD. DS. Uh, this condition has always, for those in the past with it, been fatal. The, uh, the sufferer has a loss of uh, bodily function and then neurological function, and then the body essentially just shuts down. Uh, they lose motor function. It's terrible. Uh, this boy, uh, Charlie Gard, um, has two parents who have been um, trying everything in their power and beyond to, to find some form of treatment for him. They've been looking into everything that they possibly can uh, because the uh, British health authorities, Brit British health service, say there's, there's nothing that they can do for him and that now it's merely a discussion uh, that the only discussion that they can have is about end-of-life care. Now... That was where the situation stood until uh, 
uh, young Charlie Gard's parents, found a doctor in the U.S. Uh, who said that it that he has an experimental treatment, um, an experimental treatment that has been never has never been used for specifically MDDS, uh, mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, uh, but with similar uh, with some similar cases, it has shown some efficacy. And when you're at this stage, and when you have no options and no choices, any hope is better than. The alternative, and so his parents um, have been working with uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children, trying to convince them uh, to take uh, young Charlie for this treatment in the United States. His parents set up a GoFundMe page, and they, as I said, they found this doctor in America who has had some success with. TK2 syndrome, uh, a depletion syndrome called TK2, um, where, and that has allowed children to get strength back and live longer. Now, this is where things become very uh, contentious and very troubling. Charlie, uh, Charlie Gard and his parents, well, Charlie Gard's parents would like to take him to the U.S. for treatment. The U.K. health authorities have said no. Now, let that just sink in for a moment. Uh, the medical authorities in the United Kingdom uh, have told his parents, remember, this is not a question of whether the UK will pay for this experimental treatment, which on its own, I should say, brings up some very uh, complicated and uncomfortable uh, issues and questions, right? It's one that comes up in this country as well. If there's a with with limited resources, is there a one in if there's a one in 10,000 chance that a treatment would be successful in extending someone, not curing someone, even just extending someone's life a few months? Does every and it costs a million dollars. Does everyone get to demand that from the government? There are interesting and and very difficult ethical debates and dilemmas to be had about end of life care in those circumstances. But what the U.K. authorities are saying is not we will not be paying for an experimental treatment in the United States. Uh, up until now, at least, the, uh, the courts, in fact, this has gone to court, and the doctors that have been treating Charlie Gard uh, have said that, no, the parents are not allowed to take their child to the U.S. for this experimental treatment of uh, MDDS. And his parents are uh, understandably distraught over this. They have been put through a tremendous amount already. Um, and in response to the the outrage, by the way, a European Commission court weighed in on this as well. And the decision was that uh, more or less uh, put put in plain terms that the, the court ruled that Charlie Gard, this 10 month old boy, uh, should just quote die with dignity, end quote. That that's the most imp that's the most important course of action right now. The only course of action right now, and not even the parents of the child in this case would have the right to override the state's decision and and discretion over the health care of the child. This is now you see very troubling. In fact, the uh, out the outrage against this has uh, caught on internationally. And it 
raises the limits of what should be the limits of state control versus the control of a parent to determine care for children. Uh, remember, this is this is not a you know a, a parents don't want a child that's in duress to get antibiotics because they don't believe in them or something. These are parents who are desperate to do anything, and the uh, UK authorities say there's nothing, and they're saying, well, let, let's at least try this. What, what's the, the worst thing that can happen is that we're in the same situation we're in. The best is that maybe it gives him a few years of life. Maybe, you know, who, who knows? No one knows. Literally no medical authority on planet Earth really knows what the end result of giving Charlie Gard this treatment would be. But the British government is saying, we're not letting you as parents take that chance. We're not letting you have hope here. Charlie just needs to be made as comfortable as possible in his last weeks uh, on Earth. Um, That's not sitting uh, well with people all over the world, with many people all over the world. That's showing a side of the state, a side of statism that I think sets us all on edge, understandably so. Now the government gets to make this determination. Now the government can override the rights and the will of parents to try and save their child's life. And as I said, this is not medical authorities say they know more. Medical authorities are merely saying, you don't get to try more. You're done. It's This is the government telling parents that when it comes to their child, it's just a matter of time, but it's over. You don't have the right to fight anymore. A lot of parents hearing that are not accepting it. And now the authorities in the United Kingdom have given more time, uh, have given more time to the couple with, uh, with Charlie. Uh, this UK hospital says he will have more time, and it's not really clear um, what that will mean. The legal battle just ended this week. That's why it was in the news. The court came down and said that uh, life support would be ended. Remember the, so they're going to take this baby off life support. Keep it. So they're not even, this is not even just a question of whether they can get the treatment or not. They're also going to be saying that they're going to pull the plug. The, the state is saying you don't get to try and we're pulling the plug. And now they are holding back on that. Uh, I should note for those of you who say, well, or might think to yourself, well, it's that's in Europe. I mean, that certainly is not uh, that's not something that we should be overly concerned about happening here. Well, when you see the way the media in this country um, writes about this, I mean, you see the Washington Post, for example, on uh, on a major story on this writing, this terminally ill infant will be allowed to die, but first his parents will say goodbye. Allowed to die? Uh, no, in fact, the state is making the decision that they were they're going to end this. This baby's life is going to be ended on a timetable that they are deciding. When the parents don't want that to happen, and the parents would like to try this. Granted, it, it. I'm sure. I don't know what the odds are. I'm sure it is a long shot. It is an unproven medical therapy up against. A disease that when you read about it, this um, infantile onset encephalomyopathic mitochondrial DNA, you know, this MDDS disease, you read about it and you think to yourself, why would such a thing ever exist? It's just heartbreaking and just destructive and terrible. How can such a thing be 
around in the world? Uh, what purpose could it ever serve? And it's one of those questions for which I don't think anyone ever has a good answer. It just is. It should not be, but it is. Uh, but we all have a right to try and uh, fight for ourselves or fight for members of our families, uh, members of our family when it comes to uh, life issues. And the state's lack of sensitivity to this and that it went to a European Commission court as well. And that they would say that, no, it's better off for your child to just stay in the hospital. We can be in charge. And then we're just going to determine, OK, it's enough. Now we're going to now we've given enough care. Now the now the life support goes. Now the baby dies or this infant dies. Um, this is written about by some journalists in this country as, oh, yeah, of course, that's the that's the that's the normal decision for the state to make here. Or that's a that's a a. a uh, supportable decision, a justifiable decision in the hands of the state. I, I, I would have to strenuously disagree. And that's why I believe now at least there's been this, okay, we're not going to end life support right now. There's more time. Um, does, this, does this story look like it's going to have a happy ending? And I'm sorry that we're talking about this, I know, before you're all going off on a holiday weekend, but we're going to be changing... We're going to go back to other topics here right after the break, but I, I thought it was important to talk about this. Uh, the story is very unlikely to have a happy ending, uh, but there's something very basic and very necessary and very human about at least being able to fight for a happier ending. And the state should not stand in the way without cause other than a decision that it has the authority to do so and prevent parents from doing everything in their power from saving the life of a child. So I, I should also note that the, uh, uh, the the Vatican, I believe, has weighed in on this with a statement that I I do not know what is going... I, I, know, I don't know how many of you listening are Catholic. I went to Jesuit school. I don't know what's going on with the top echelon of the Catholic Church with this uh, papacy, but... When they start seeming to be a little bit confused on life issues, very worrisome because there are so few places left, so few major institutions left in the world that are just always on the right side of the issue of life that when I see the church wavering on this, it is uh, additional cause for concern. It's not surprising to me that um, the UK, that this European Commission um, is w ruled in this way. That, that is not a surprise to me. Um, and, you know, I should also note that in places like the, the Netherlands, you're seeing increases in euthanasia. It's, euthanasia is being normalized more and more as, a, as an individual. Remember, this is, we're not talking, that's different than what we have here. We have a terminally ill uh, baby. Um, but life issues in Europe are are heading in the wrong direction. It's uh, something that the, the long-term consequences for societies that abandon life as sacred are uh, dire, I think. And so this, this is a case that we should all be familiar with, we should know, we should remember, uh, we should not forget. And if it ever comes down to it, we should be ready to fight in our own way um, because I, I could see a, a yeah, I could see some version of uh, in the future a, 
especially with the calls for single payer, more government control of health care, uh, the uh, the health authorities in this country getting more authority and power over our lives all the time. Uh, I could see a situation where, there were a, a similar decision is made here by the government, and uh, that's not okay. That's not acceptable. Um, all right. I If you have thoughts on this, I, I'm happy to take them, but otherwise we're going to be uh, moving on to some other topics here. 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we're going to... Uh, Move in another direction, your team. I'll be back with you in just a few. Here in the Freedom Hut, we got calls coming in from all over the place. Uh, let's take them. I want to hear from you. Uh, Christian in North Carolina, WPTI. Wow, what a pleasure to speak to you, Buck. Uh, you too, sir. Inspiration. I really mean this to my uh, bottom of my heart. I just pulled up from work into the driveway. I'm having a hard time hearing this because now I've got kids of my own that we're struggling. But thank God that we have the health care that we do. And I'm watching our country going to the same direction. What you were just, The story that you were just speaking of has really hit me hard. Um, this is what we're seeing. You know, it's kind of scary. It's like, uh, what, what are we supposed to You know, I don't want to do the, the typical person, and God bless their hearts, but I, 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 what are we supposed to do? Like, what, are we, like, what, are, what can we do um, if this happens into our, in our country? You got to keep your keep your family and loved ones close, and stand by your principles, and do what you think is right, and just try to be the man you are, and be a little better if you can every day. That's all you can do, man. Don't get too don't get too down about it. It's important to know about these things, but you also can you can allow the burdens of the world to crush you if you're not careful. So you want to be aware, you want to be vigilant, but you also don't want to be down. So try to, you know, I'm sure you've got a you got a holiday weekend coming up, my friend. Do not. Uh, do not despair. There's a lot of, you know, I also feel like I should do a show on all the, you know, great medical breakthroughs and other things that are going on that are really fantastic. So, you know, maybe that's something I'll look to do next week. But for now, man, I, I would go ahead. No, that would be fantastic. Because like, knowledge is amazing. So, uh, yeah. I, I that's very kind of you. I just, I, I, I try to read a lot so that when you guys give me your time, I bring you worth, I bring you worthwhile information. What were you, one more thing, Christian, then we got to go to the next call. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, Joe Scarborough is like Joe Scarborough for life, bro. That's just the way I see him. <laughs> He's the what, bro? The Joe Scarborough for life, bro. Oh, okay. Christian, thank you for calling I- in. Um, appreciate it. Shields high. Let's take uh, Patrick in Virginia, WKCY. Hey. Hey, Patrick. Um. So I was just uh, listening to your radio program and. Um, that thing about the boy, it, it kind of struck a nerve with me, as you, as it probably did you. Of course. That's why I talked about it. Um, see, during, during before, um, before time, um, during the Depression in Germany, um, a similar thing happened when Hitler took um, over, when he um, had all those, um, all the mental um, patients and all the people there. Um, he he started doing a similar thing with them that he just declared them inadequate. And well, just, Hitler, he, Nazi Germany rounded up uh, the uh, those who had um, health health con- you know, uh, congenital health conditions, the the infirm, the uh, mentally ill, and they tried to and they tried to exterminate them. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of that. I'm just wondering if you um, 
if you see the similar similarities with that. Well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I mean, the, the UK is still a great country and there's, you know, there's a lot of fantastic stuff going on there every day. And this is just one case. But I do think it illustrates the dangers of state authority, especially when the state, because it's so involved in health care decisions, a state that is making health care decisions is also making life decisions. And uh, there's going to always be some of that that goes on in advanced societies, but we, we want to limit it as much as possible. And here, I think there's they've clear, they've clearly gone too far. I mean, here they have usurped re- what is really a, a sacred right of parents to seek um, a cure or just seek a, a better future for a sick child. I, I don't think this because remember that's it's, it's not that the state won't pay for it. It's the state says we won't let you try to get it, which is different. Absolutely. And I think that it should be a freedom of the parents to do that. I don't understand why England decided to overstep their freedoms in that case. Well, it's I, on, on what moral grounds does the English, uh, does the British state think it stands? I, I'm not sure that there's a there's a strong argument for it. I, I think that they've made a, they've made an error, and that's why they've extended. I, this is just the breaking news from today. They've extended how long they will keep uh, this young boy on life support uh, because I think they are thinking, okay, well, may- maybe we should let him go to America and uh, do this. Although that would be overriding the the court, which I-, I suppose would be illegal. I mean, they're at a point now where what if they were to take and and I I uh, applaud my friend over at National Review, Charles Cook. I believe he tweeted this out. They're forcing the parents of this boy if they really wanted to seek this treatment, no matter what, what are they going to do? Take him against the state's, state's wishes? They're, commit, is it a crime then? I mean, this is what you have to really think about. I mean, if the state has exerted its will and you contradict that uh, diktat from the state, what does that make you a criminal now because you want to save your kid? Patrick, thank you for calling in. Um, if you got more on this, guys, we can talk about it. Uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes uh, after a quick break. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. We have Jessica in Mississippi, WBUV, on the line. What's up, Jessica? Hey, Buck. Love the show. Thank love you. Don't miss a day. So I love your wit and your insight, and uh, it's really a joy to listen to and a delight. Thank you. Um. You're welcome. My thoughts are on the Catholic Church in general right now and the Pope. Um, my mother is a real big conservative, and she's Bavarian, so of course she loves Pope Benedict. And when he stepped down, it was just a tragedy. But, um, you know, I've defended and defended Pope Francis, and, and uh, just with him letting Cardinal Mueller, um, he let him go today. It's just kind of it was a little depressing. Uh-huh. And how this pertains to your story is that when you said that the Catholic Church, you know, when they're on, not on the right side of life, you know, it's just kind well, of— Well, no, they, they are, they are in general, they are, and the very few important institutions these days are. But I feel like they're—you know, this statement I'm looking at right now, Archbishop Vincenzo uh, Paglia, president of the Pontifical Academy for Life, says the interest of the patient must be paramount— but we must also accept the limits of medicine, avoid aggressive medical procedures that are disproportionate to any expected results or excessively burdensome to the patient or the family. It's kind of, it sounds kind of like he's agreeing with the British government. That's, I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but. It does. And my understanding is that, is that you only use that when, you know, it's life support or anything like that, not going to do anything for the patient. 
But the fact that they have a GoFundMe page and they're not asking anybody for any kind of economic relief besides donations, is, it's just pretty sad. And, and like you said, it's statism that um, we should all be careful of, especially with the, the liberals pushing the you know, the single-payer system. Yeah, a single-payer system will, will mean, because that's, by the way, the U.K. is one of the few countries in the world that has a very, really does have a single-payer system, right? That That is uh, an advanced industrial country, the way that people talk about, uh, they talk about other countries, but in reality, there's a lot, you know, Canada, for example, yeah, they have, uh, they have um, a, a system that is the government is in charge, but there's also a large private. Now, I think actually now I'm speaking out loud. I think the British market is probably the private market is getting bigger all the time, too. Uh, but in Canada, it's a true single payer system in that. I'm sorry, uh, Britain. It's a true single payer sister in the, a system in the and it's really socialist medicine. I mean, they, they own the they run the facilities. Right. They determine who gets the care. They pay the doctors. They run the hospitals. It's government all the way through. It's not just the government. It's not like Medicare is what I'm trying to say, where the government picks up the tab, but isn't necessarily the one delivering and controlling the care. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and that's, yeah. Yeah, and that's what the concerning is because when the liberals were pushing Obamacare and the Republicans aren't doing their best to, you know, fix it, repeal and replace it correctly. I mean, that's kind of where we were headed. I, I think so. I saw a very interesting piece, and thank you for calling in, Jessica. Appreciate it. Shields, I have a great Independence Day weekend. A piece in the National Journal that I was thinking about um, spending some time with uh, all of you on there talking about it, but it's uh, why Republicans are losing the health care fight. GOP leaders sound so unconvinced about the merits of their own proposed policy that they've stopped trying to make the case for reform entirely. It's a provocative thesis, and it's one I think we should take seriously. What if the GOP members of the Senate really don't want, what if they really don't, now that they're staring at repealing and replacing, they don't want to do it? That seems very possible, doesn't it? We, we at least should take the idea seriously. Um, Brian in Florida, iHeart app. What's up, Brian? Hey, what's up? Um, I was wondering, have you seen that documentary, Hell on Earth? No, I haven't. Serious thing? Oh, you haven't? Is uh, it, should I? Is it good? Well, it's about the Syria, you know, the fall of Syria, the rise of ISIS. I was just wondering your take on it. I saw the white helmets about the people that go in and try to save people after the collapse of buildings with the airstrikes going on. Uh, and that's very good. It's also very watchable. It's it's quick. It's not a not a long, uh, not a long time commitment. Geographic thing. This National Geographic thing, and you know, they they compare like ISIS killings of civilians and Assad killings of civilians to. Uh, you know, World War II bombings of German cities and stuff like that. I'll, 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 uh, I'll try. It's on Netflix, you said? I'll probably have some time this weekend. Uh, no, National Geographic. Oh, uh, not, okay, National Geographic. All right. Uh, if uh, I wanted your analysis on it besides the left-wing hate America propaganda, you know? Yeah, well, let, let me take it. Let me let me watch it, and uh, I'll come back and I'll, on, on air at some point. When I talk I have, about Syria, I'll mention it, all right? I have an action movie quote. Oh, okay. Wow, we're, we're all over the place. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Oh, no, you're one of them. Please don't kill me. Please, please don't kill me. Now that's from Die Hard. It's when Hans Gruber is pretending yeah. to be an American who goes to a paintball ranch <laughs> at some point. And uh, he switches. Yeah. But I should note, he switches from a British accent to an American accent. He should have a German accent. I know the difference. So I'm just putting it out there, right? He's like, I'm Hans Gruber. She'd be like, hello, I'm Hans Gruber. It's very different. Anyway, thank you for calling in, Brian. Have a great, have a great Independence Weekend. Uh, we'll take one more call here before we got to run into another break. Maggie in Mississippi, good to hear from you on WBUV. Hey, Buck, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. 
Uh, thank you for taking my call. So um, that story kind of hit home with me. Um, granted, I don't have children of my own yet. I'm only 23. But I was a childhood cancer patient, and um, I know how hard my mom and my dad fought for me. So the story kind of hits home. Um, I, I would, if it was my child, I would be fighting tooth and nail to get my child to where I knew that if, even if I only had a couple of years to spend with my child, I'd be fighting tooth and nail to get that child over here to get the treatment that she, that he or she needed. I hear you, Maggie. Yeah. I, I think, I think as a, as a blank, as just a rule, parents should be free to pursue uh, in this situation, what, whatever they whatever they deem is best and necessary, um, when when if they think there's hope, then they should be able to chase that hope and do whatever they can. So that's we'll see. I, if, I if, agree if, wholeheartedly. Yeah. I hope, I agree wholeheartedly, and I don't think the state should be able to stop us. No, I, I know, and so that's why this is really called on. I know there's new. I, I I I know there's a new cancer treatment out there that uh that actually can shrink the tumor within 48 hours that I shared on Facebook myself today. And uh, I know if that was an experimental treatment when I was a child, my mother would have jumped on it in a heartbeat. Well, I hear you. Well, Maggie, I'm, I'm glad that you I'm glad that you won your fight and you pulled through. I want you to have a great Independence Day weekend. Thank you very much for calling and sharing your story. Shield time, Maggie. Uh, all right, team, we are uh, we got to go into a break here. We'll be back in a few. Uh, stay with me. It's Independence Day weekend, also known as Fourth of July weekend or July Fourth, uh, depending on what part of the country you're in. Uh, we have some history to talk about here, and we're joined by Larry Schweikert to do so. He's a New York Times best-selling author, and he's the author of the brand new book, "The Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution." Mr. Schweikert, good to have you, sir. How you doing, Doc? Uh, I mean, this is obviously the fertile, fertile ground for a book. I'm always complaining about how they don't teach the kids this in school anymore. You know, I get I get angry about that stuff. Uh, but oftentimes I'm, I'm discussing happenings uh, outside of uh, the United States when I'm talking about that. Uh, tell me some of the, uh, the things in your politically incorrect guide to the American Revolution that folks wouldn't know. Well, they probably wouldn't know that our best general in the whole revolution was the traitor Benedict Arnold. <laughs> he was consistently one of the best uh, tacticians and strategists, and really it's, it's a shame that, uh, that we lost him, but he was also very uh, easy to take offense and was, was constantly thinking that he was underappreciated, and he was just a little bit greedy. And so when he was made the right offer by the British and a hot wife, Peggy Shippen, he, he couldn't refuse that. So that's one thing you're going to find. And uh, tell me about the... Uh, some of the, what is this, the four key factors that applied only in America, making it impossible to replicate this revolution anywhere else? Yeah, the, the pillars of American exceptionalism. Uh, the first two are a Christian, mostly Protestant religious tradition, and that's important because the English were Anglican with a top-down religious structure. Uh, most of the Catholic nations of, of Europe were top-down. Only America had a congregational bottom-up structure, 
And that was replicated in our governmental policy under common law, whereby God puts the law in the hearts of the people, and the people elect representatives to carry out what they already know, as opposed to what Europe had, most of Asia, which is a divine right of kings. Uh, God puts the uh, you know everything in the hands of the ruler, and he tells everybody what to do. The other two have to do with economic property, private property, and a free market capitalism. But the first two, many countries have the latter two. Almost nobody, in fact, nobody else has the first two. Tell me why it mattered that the uh, the Patriot Fighting Force had uh, such a considerable contingent of Scotch-Irish. The Scotch-Irish, this was a religious war almost as much as it was a political war. The Scots-Irish really detested England. They came out in huge numbers, especially in the South. We estimate that two-thirds of the fighting was done by Scots-Irish in the South, and uh, they were just a determined people. They eventually drove the British out of the South and forced them up into Virginia where Washington could could surround them. And how are Americans uh, different from Europeans and the English at the outset of the revolution. Not something you often hear much about. In fact, I feel like the the, the trend recently has been to just talk about how, well, Americans were just Brits who hadn't yet become Americans. Well, of course, you could say the American Revolution started from the moment the first people got off the boats at Jamestown or Plymouth, uh, but, but we had grown very independent because it was several months to get a policy approved from England and back again. So the American colonies had about 150 years of practicing uh, democratic republicanism, which no other country on earth really had. And and we might mention also that, that we were very prosperous and pretty well fed. A- at Bunker Hill, uh, the British on average were about two inches shorter than the Americans they were fighting after only about 160 years of of you know Americans growing up in America, so that's pretty interesting. And you talk about how in your book, and I'm speaking to Larry Schweikert, uh, who's a best-selling author, and his latest book is the Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution. Actually, before I get to other revolutions, so why is this politic? Why is your guide to the revolution politically incorrect? I mean, what about it uh, would be would fall under the heading of political incorrectness? Well, for one thing, the revolution was not the work of a handful of of white slave owners. In fact, you could really say the revolution starts with the association movement of 1774, and the associations were across the the, uh, colonies, tens of thousands of ordinary shopkeepers, farmers, artisans put their names on the articles of association that basically said, They would boycott and embargo all British goods. They would not trade with England at all. And by putting their names on those documents, they, in essence, became traitors subject to hanging. So this is a far cry from a group of elite staging a revolution. This was a grassroots, ordinary people revolution. What about the revolutions that were modeled on the U.S. Revolution? Uh, You mentioned hundreds of them in your book, and uh, many of them failed. Well, take the French Revolution, for example. Go back to the four pillars. How was ours different from theirs? For one thing, ours was a mostly Protestant revolution. Theirs was an anti-Catholic revolution that was uh, uh, totally secular. And second of all, ours was a revolution from the ground up 
theirs was just replacing one tyrant with another. They went from um, from uh, the King Louis to Robespierre to Napoleon in about a 12-year period, and over the next 100 years, they had uh, no fewer than five republics and two monarchies and, and a couple of other uh, Napoleon governments thrown in there. So it was a pattern for instability, not having government built on the ground up. Which of the uh, of the pop culture representations of the revolution, the various shows, there's that uh, movie with Mel Gibson, The Patriot, yep. Uh, yep. there's the movie about this, the spy ring uh, out in uh, Long Island. Uh, which do you think is, is your favorite? Which is the best for those that are thinking wow. about maybe watching or uh, tuning yeah. into something this weekend? Oh, by far, The Patriot is awesome. It's a great, great movie. But I got to tell you, I really love Turn, Washington Spies. Uh, they over-dramatize a little bit, but the guy they have playing Washington is tremendous. I think he's even better than Jeff Daniels at The Crossing, which is another great revolution movie. Jeff Daniels is George Washington at The Crossing. How is now? I know obviously there are some liberties taken because it's Hollywood and they're telling a story. But in terms of the broad strokes, what would you say about the history of, of the Patriots specifically? The history of the Patriots? They're, they're no, I mean, I mean, the Mel Gibson movie. How accurate is the history portrayed right. in it with you know t- uh, Bannister Tarleton and all of that? Yeah, it, it was quite good. I mean, they they conflate a couple of things, but but it really is. Uh, it, it pretty much ends up with the Battle of Calpins in South Carolina, and and that was pretty much what happened. The militia fired a couple of shots, retreated, sucked the British into a trap, and and they were annihilated. Now, you take on the narrative in your book. We're speaking to Larry Schweiker, author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution. Uh, you take on Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Before you tell us how or why that's wrong or what the I- incorrect uh, or dishonest narratives in that book, which is a history of the United States, not just the revolution, uh, what, what do people need to know about that? I've heard about this, and I, I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't read Zinn's people's history of the united states what's the what's the 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 so what well i would suggest to you before you read the whole thing why don't you try to find one of his source notes oh wait you can't he doesn't have any he doesn't have a single source note doesn't have really any kind of bibliography that you can check to prove any one of his points it's all one just marxist running narrative this is what i think and and our book is chock full of a book you're not supposed to read, which is our sources for all of these various facts, figures, interpretations we come up with. And, and uh, the scholarship is pretty extensive. For example, you'll love this one. Did you know that in 1770, the average American was already as rich as his British counterparts and that that made us and the Brits uh, richer in 1770? Average person per capita than almost uh, half the nations across the globe today, that an American in 1770 was better off economically than some of the people alive on Earth today. That's astounding. Oh, how do you? How does one even make that comparison? What do they? They look at dollars then versus dollars. To, I mean, how, right. how? How do you even make that? Uh, how do you break that down? You know what's interesting, and what some of the people have done is look at inheritance lists and inheritance rolls and gotten into what the colonials left to their children and, and you know, uh, uh, took that into real dollars into current day's time. So there's a number of ways you can do it. Another thing that uh, economic historians have found 
is that the navigation acts, which are usually cited by textbooks as the reason for the American Revolution, that the navigation acts really only came out to a burden of about on a low side a quarter and on a high side a dollar a year per person in 1770. Now, what does that tell us? Nobody's going to war over a dollar a year. It's not going to happen. The revolution, contrary to what Zinn says, was about ideas and about British policies, not about money. Larry Schweikert is author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the American Revolution. Check it out. This would be a great weekend to do it, Independence Weekend. Larry, thank you so much for joining. We appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. Uh, See, we're going to hit a break. We've got much more show. We'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Welcome back, everyone. We've got Dr. Michael Gillen on the line. He's an Emmy Award-winning Harvard physicist and author of the upcoming thriller, The Null Prophecy, which he can't tell us too much about now. But next time when he's on, he'll be talking about the book release. Uh, Dr. Gillen, thanks so much for joining. Oh, it's my pleasure, Buck. Looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. So it's the holiday weekend. People will be looking up at the sky. They probably are not going to be thinking about how an asteroid almost hit the Earth recently, which I guess could have killed all of us. Uh, well, you know, it, 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 it actually wasn't big enough to kill all of us, but it would have gotten our attention for sure. And there are definitely asteroids out there that have that capacity and then some. And it's interesting you say um, recently because I – just checked uh, with the uh, Near-Earth Object Center just to see what's uh, coming up on the pallet, and uh, <laughs> we have um, two asteroids today that, with some close approaches, and then we have about a half a dozen in the month of July. So the action isn't over yet. <laughs> Wait to see before the summer is over. Uh, do we have any that, as, as I see here in your piece for Fox News, have the destructive power of 300 Hiroshima A-bombs on the way, or are those just that's theoretical? Yeah, that's theoretical for now. Well, it's theoretical and not, uh, Buck, in the sense that um, really all it takes is uh, an asteroid about 40 um, uh, yards across. So that's like a half a football field that can cause that kind of damage, 300 Hiroshima bombs. And what we have found uh, is there, just to, give, just to give your listeners an idea of what we're talking about, um, uh, there are about 200 million asteroids out there uh, within the solar system that have a a diameter of about six yards or more. Okay, so picture this kind of cosmic-sized demolition derby, and these are asteroids that cross our path. Okay, so 200 million asteroids, six yards or bigger, that cross our path at one time or another. Now, of those, we've looked at them, and we think about 1,700 of those are what we call potentially hazardous asteroids, okay, uh, PHAs. And um, those are the ones that have uh, the potential of really doing some harm, uh, taking out a city, for example. It, it, would only, uh, it would only take an asteroid of about 40 yards across half a football field to take out Los Angeles or New York or the city I'm in right now, Nashville. So it doesn't take a whole lot. And of those 1,700 potentially hazardous asteroids, we really have our eye on 900 of them. Because those are the global killers. Those are the ones that can take out, uh, you know, not more than even one continent that would create a kind of a global disaster. So about 900 out of those 200 million are the ones we're keeping an eye on. The good news is, Buck, 
is that we've spent a lot of time uh, looking at them, charting their orbits, so we kind of know where they are, but we, we probably only know about 90% of them. So there is a possibility uh, that, you know, there's one out there lurking in the shadows of the solar system uh, that could kind of just rear its head and do us in. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody. Well, that, yeah, that, well I mean, everyone's going to be waving was... flags and drinking beer and having a barbecue this weekend. But uh, don't, don't don't worry, everybody, about the end of the end of the world. It's okay. Uh, but no. we're speaking to Dr. Michael Gillen. He's the Emmy Award-winning Harvard physicist, uh, and he's author of the upcoming thriller, The Null Prophecy. Uh, Dr. Gillen, uh, just some some basic terminology: comet versus asteroid. Yeah, okay, so uh, really a comet is like a dirty ice cube. It's mostly ice, but with some rock and some uh, uh, petroleum products thrown in. I actually have made comets for school kids before just to show them, and I put in some dry ice, some regular ice, and I mix in some mud. I throw in some oil, and that's pretty much a comet. An asteroid is just a rock. It's rubble that we believe are uh, rubble that's left over from the creation of our solar system about four and a half billion years ago. And they come in two varieties, either what we call rocky type, which are just rocks, uh, and then metallic. They're very heavy in nickel and other uh, things. And in fact, there, there are companies like Planetary Resources that are now talking very realistically about landing on asteroids and mining them for their rich minerals. And by the way, we've landed on two asteroids. One back in 2001, we did it, the United States. We landed on, the, on a comet named Eros. And then the Japanese did it uh, later. Uh, I think it was like about two, 2010, they landed on, a, on an asteroid as well. So we, we've, we've come to know asteroids, asteroids pretty well, and they are a very realistic threat. Not, not anything, as you say, that's going to you know, interrupt our Fourth of July barbecue, but it's also not theoretical. I mean, these are very realistic uh, threats that the Earth faces. It's just part of living in a solar system with all this rubble just all around us, whizzing around us. You'll like have to excuse the, the question, uh, the, the very uh, simplistic question, your doctor, but, you know, all of us have seen Armageddon, and yep. we know, you know, Ben Affleck, Bruce Willis up there on an, uh, on an asteroid. Um, and, wait, by the way, asteroid versus meteor. Give me that one. Okay, well, asteroids are very large objects, uh, in big, big rocks in space, okay? And then there are uh, uh, meteoroids, which are kind of smaller versions of asteroids. Then there is meteor, which is just the, the shooting star you see when one of these meteoroids or small asteroids hit the atmosphere. They create these shooting stars, and the technical term for those are meteors. And then if there's anything left over... Then and it land, actually lands on the Earth, as often happens, little chunks of rock uh, that weren't incinerated. Those are called meteorites. So you have asteroids, meteoroids, meteors, and meteorites. And there's going to be a pop quiz. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. So I, I'm not. I'm. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person right now who's like writing this down or trying to pay extra close attention in case there's a quiz at the end, which I promise, guys, there won't be. But you can always download no, the no, podcast no. and listen to it again. So I was asking though about defenses against asteroids. You know, if someone this weekend they're looking up at the sky, they're thinking about the uh, the red, white, and blue, and a great a great Independence Day weekend, uh, and you know, somewhere in the very, very far distance, at some point in the future, we we could have a problem here. Took out the dinosaurs as we know so yep. is there some kind of uh, theoretical asteroid defense that we're supposed to be working on this is where i thought about armageddon and bruce willis and all. i'm assuming we're not going to land on them and use a, a nuclear weapon in the core but maybe we'll do something 
Yeah, yeah, actually, and 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 I'll back up. By the way, four years ago there was an incident over Russia, and it was only about uh, we think maybe um, a 20-yard uh, asteroid, and it injured 1,500 people. So again, this is not theoretical; it's realistic. Although, as I say, I don't want people to panic. It's not like imminent. Um, as far as defenses are concerned, yeah, actually, there's a lot of noise. Uh, NASA is planning, uh, along with the European Space Agency, to create something called the AIDA project. It's the Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment. We, we're thinking it's still in the idea stage right now, so we're thinking they might launch in about five years or so. But the idea there is to launch a, uh, uh, a, a spaceship towards a particular asteroid. And the one they have their eye on is a, what we call a binary asteroid. It actually comes in two parts, the primary object, and then it has a little moonlit, if you can believe it. Can you imagine, Buck? So you have this thing out there, and they're going to shoot this spaceship, the AIDA spaceship. It comes in two parts. One of it is called DART. Uh, and when it gets there, the idea is that it will um, shoot, uh, it will shoot a projectile. So the idea being to push it out of the way with this projectile. So that's one way of approaching it. The other ideas that have been floated, but nothing, there's no activity on it so far, is that you could send something up like a nuclear weapon and get close enough to it and then explode the nuclear weapon and just shatter the thing. But, of course, then you created, you know, out of one asteroid, you create a lot of other little meteoroids, and, and hopefully they would incinerate without doing much harm. But you run that risk. And then there's a third idea that's kind of floated out there, which I think is the most far-fetched, which is that you would send some kind of very massive object, some very massive cap, uh, uh, spaceship, uh, just to get in the vicinity of an asteroid far, far away. This would happen, have to happen way in advance of an impact and allow that uh, massive spaceship's gravity to somehow pull the uh, asteroid out of its current orbit and therefore uh, you know, help it to avoid the Earth. Uh, that's, to me, a very far-fetched thing. You would need to do that probably a decade or more in advance. We've got less than a know, minute, right Doc, now, but I want to ask you real quick. Uh, yeah. Within our lifetime, people will be living on Mars, yes or no? Within our lifetime, I think probably yes. Uh, Long-term, I'm not so sure, but certainly visiting. I think I have a 17-year-old son, and I'm thinking, you know, yeah, in his lifetime for sure, I think he will experience what we did in 1969 when we watched a man land on the moon. I think it could be very exciting. I'm sorry, and I have one more for the rapid fire. Is yeah. there life off of Earth? Uh, you know, uh, I covered a story for ABC News years ago where we thought we found some micros remains of some microscopic life in a Mars rock, and I actually got to touch the Mars rock. It was collected here on Earth. Um, that turned out to be kind of a false alarm. A lot of noises, a lot of headlines, but they're mostly spurious. If I had to bet, uh, uh, if we did find life, it would probably be microscopic. All right, I'll take it. Dr. Uh, yeah. Michael Gillen, Emmy Award-winning Harvard physicist, author of the upcoming thriller, The Null Prophecy. Thank you very much, sir. You're welcome. Happy Fourth of July to you and your listeners. You too, sir. And team, Thanks, we'll bye. be right back. I like to think that I'm not a hateful person, and I try to uh, always calm myself when I get too angry about any specific uh, issue or group of uh, individuals, uh, political or otherwise, who are opposing me on something. And yeah, I, I just try to be uh, as open-minded and chill as possible. Yeah, man, like, it just wants to be, like, you know, chill and like, whatever. Uh, so I, I do not always succeed. Uh, but I do allow myself to hate one, well, no, I hate more than one thing. That's That would not be, I cannot tell a lie, team. But there's 
uh, one species for which I just do have a, a burning hatred, uh, mosquitoes. I don't understand why mosquitoes exist. To me, they're just viruses with wings. I know that there are, uh, people will tell me, oh, Buck, they're an essential part of the ecosystem because, you know, other animals eat them. And I'm like, can we get some little fly that doesn't bite people and pass along all kinds of uh, terrible uh, life-ruining and, in some cases, fatal pathogens? You know, do, do we have to live in a world with mosquitoes? I mean, I'm not somebody who often is pro-eradication of a species, but I think that we could all get behind mosquito just gone, like eradication of all of them. I remember, uh, you know, being down recently in, in Puerto Rico and having to think about, oh, you know, here we are. Puerto Rico is a place that has had all these reports of Zika. If you look at a CDC map, by the way, of where Zika has spread, and it includes the United States, especially Florida, uh, but it's anywhere in the Caribbean that you're thinking about going is, is part of the Zika blast radius. I mean, it's just... And there's all these reports you'll read about how we don't really know and how how dangerous is it, how long does it go, and everything else. Uh, I think it's interesting that uh, there's a new documentary coming out from Bill Gates where he where they make the claim uh, that a mosquito-borne pandemic, and I know this is up on the Daily Mail and it's getting some attention from Drudge, a mosquito-borne pandemic uh, could kill. 10 million people very easily just based on uh, the clustering of people in, in urban areas and uh, how quickly mosquito-borne infection can pass from one person to another. You know, that's one thing, for example, with Zika. I, I didn't, I unfortunately did way too much reading about Zika when I was uh, spent a weekend in Puerto Rico um, because I get very nervous about these kinds of things. And I ended up, it was really rained out. And so I spent the weekend indoors. So there was that. Um, but it never had occurred to me before that you have to. I always thought mosquitoes outdoors, uh, that's when you're going to get bitten, sundown, and at night, uh, that's when you have to really worry. And that is true in a lot of cases. But for example, the primary delivery mechanism for Zika, the primary uh, concern when it comes to Zika transmission, is the uh, Aedes aegypti mosquito. Uh, which, by the way, for those of you who are like, oh, I'm not worried about Zika, it also can carry dengue, which is really rough. I've had some friends, I've known people that have gotten dengue, and chikungunya, which I have read about, don't know very much about at all. I do know it's a, vi it's a virus that causes uh, joint pain and rash. Um, so, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad thing to get, but uh, the one that, of course, we all know best from mosquito-borne infection is malaria and you know there was a time in my life team when i would try i would travel to places for adventure for you know for work or for whatever you know if there was if there's a malaria that was a big problem i'd be like you know what i'm gonna take the uh, meds and roll the dice and now pretty much wherever wherever there's a real warning that i have to be concerned about malaria i'm like i'm like nope not not going thanks uh not interested in a uh, you know, not interested in going. Yeah, I mean, but bottom line, I just, I just don't go anywhere where they have malaria now. And I mean, I would if I really had to, but it, it's not something that I have uh, have any any interest at all in in signing up for. Um, having taken meds for that in the past, uh, it's 
the stuff that you take is really, uh, you know, you read about it. You're like, I don't know if I'm going to be taking this. And then they're like, well, do you want malaria? I mean, your choice is not fun. Malaria is terrible. You really don't want it. It's, um, uh, it's a parasite. It can actually re reoccur later. You can get relapses. Uh, so uh, anyway, back to this piece in the Daily Mail. Uh, you've, got, uh, you've got Gates, uh, Bill Gates and his foundation looking into dealing with uh, dealing with the possibility of not just Zika, which is a very real pandemic already, um, but the possibility of a, a major pandemic based on some disease that we currently don't know all that well, uh, that all of a sudden starts rapidly, uh, that starts rapid transmission uh, for, um, for a, a fatal disease, right? I mean, and what I was saying about the uh, Aedes aegyptus uh, mosquito is that I always assumed that, which is the one that you have to worry about the most when it comes to Zika, I always assumed that this was, uh, that, you know, you have to worry about being out at night and when you're asleep, but actually they're, uh, they're day biters, largely, and inside and in cities. So, you know, you, you think you're fine because you're indoors, but if the indoors has a window open somewhere uh, and you're in a crowded, you know, Caribbean or um, South American city, uh, that's actually that's actually prime Zika transmission area. If you're out in the jungle getting uh, eaten by all kinds of mosquitoes, but there's like nobody else for miles, it's actually less likely that you will get Zika, although there's other stuff you could get, but it's less likely that you would get uh, Zika, as I understand it, as I've been uh, reading about it. Uh, so I just I hate mosquitoes, though, and I really sort of like viruses. I don't know why they have to exist. You know, viruses just exist uh, to make our lives miserable and in some cases, unfortunately, to, to end lives. Uh, many cases, obviously, throughout history. So I hate mosquitoes. I would like to wage a war on them um, this weekend. I'm sure some of you will be waging your own personal war on mosquitoes, uh, and I think that will uh, be a reminder to us all that, you know, of, of all the creatures that are out there, some of them are just meant to be, some of them are the bad guys, you know, some of them are like that wrestler, the progressive, the progressive liberal, where they just exist to annoy us. Like mosquitoes are just there to do bad things. By the way, that wrestler, the progressive liberal really kind of caught on. I mentioned him a few days ago. I think it's a great, funny character just because he, he kind of has the condescending, uh, smarmy liberal thing down and for a wrestler to do it is really amusing but anyway uh, he's the the heel right the bad guy in wrestling mosquitoes are like the heel of the animal kingdom I mean they're just they're just the worst uh, and I know this weekend hopefully wherever you are you won't have to deal with them too much uh, but it's a very back to a, a serious discussion here about it it's a very real concern I mean I'm somebody who from all the reading I do is m much more worried about pandemic disease than say climate change although who wants to guess what they do now to make it to, to uh, you know, to, to make climate change seem more urgent? Oh, of course, climate change and pandemic disease are directly tied to each other because of a warmer climate, more mosquitoes, more mosquitoes, more transmission of these terrible diseases, more transmission leads to pandemic situation and mutations of viruses and other uh, bad things you can get from mosquitoes, etc., etc. So uh, once again, climate change for the left is the never ending the never ending source of uh, correlations right you can always find some way uh, to say that that climate change is causing some bad thing somewhere in the world so even when you see bill gates 
putting a greater focus, his foundation, on a very worthy cause, tackling, uh, tackling Zika, eliminating uh, mosquito-borne illness. I mean, malaria kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. Even when they're doing that, they have to get all mixed in on doing climate change stuff, too, uh, which is just a shame because climate change has nothing to do with this problem. But I'll be back in uh, just a few minutes. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. It was just a few days ago that I was talking to you all about the uh, minimum wage in Seattle, which is now $15. It's been $15 for a while. And the city of Seattle uh, commissioned a study, brought in some experts to look at the minimum wage there and the impact that it had on workers. And sure enough, just as many Ebenezer Scrooge conservatives keep saying, minimum wage laws sound great, but in practice, they do not help the people they're supposed to help the way they are supposed to help them. So that, and the reasons in the case of Seattle were just as people like me lay out time and again, yeah, you can tell somebody what they have to pay a worker for an hour, but then they will, the employer, uh, will cut back on hours. And so take-home pay for minimum wage workers when they raise the mandatory wage beyond what the market will bear will sometimes drop because they just begin to cut back entire hours. And so on a month-to-month basis, you might have less overall take-home pay for people who are in the minimum wage category. Um, you also have uh, automation of jobs, which is putting pressure on on uh, on employment, particularly in the food service industry, which is where we have a lot of minimum wage workers. Uh, so you have uh, automation and also consolidation. When you tell an employer that they have to pay a certain amount of money to an employee, uh, they may say, well, the employee's not worth that, but if I... Uh, and I don't mean worth that as a person, just mean worth that their labor for the business is not necessarily worth that. So what ends up happening is the um, employer will then just hire an even more senior person, perhaps to oversee automation, or and that's a part of the consolidation process as well. So instead of three counter workers, maybe you have two checkout kiosks and an overall uh, you know, assistant manager you hire who's making 25 an hour instead of three employees at 15 an hour, now you've got a kiosk. So consolidation happens. Uh, and of course, as is always said by conservatives in these circumstances, uh, you have some job losses that occur from this. Now, I, I know that this is a, you know, because the, the business just can't handle it. So they just downsize. Fewer employees, pay them more, fewer employees. Uh, and sometimes that means that in a, in a business, it may be the end of the business, right? Because they can't compete. Um, when you... So this is a review, I know, of what we talked about earlier in the week in Seattle. But here's the thing, everybody. Minneapolis, the the city council there, just decided that they are going to get a $15 minimum wage going. Oh, look at that. What a surprise. Uh, Minneapolis City Council has just approved the $15 minimum wage today, uh, and it will affect thousands of workers across the city. And, of course... They are celebrating this. You have Council Member Abdi Warsame says, Today we uplift all workers. 
Uh, today's vote is just another step in our un- unending journey to build a better city. Um, so there's a phase-in period of this uh, for large businesses, those with more than 100 employees. Um, so that's the overall citywide. It has to be phased in by 2024, so it's 10 years. Uh, but for those with more than 100 employees, it has to be faster. So they're they're making some adjustments, some tweaks here, because they probably realize that to just all of a sudden decide a $15 minimum wage has to happen across the city would have some very real uh, economic dislocations and impacts that would not be good, that are not foreseeable, and that could really negatively impact some folks. So there's an awareness, there's an awareness of that, uh, but there's also not a willingness to abandon the idea that you can just you should just mandate what wages should be and that it'll be nothing but good stuff happening. I, I you know, I, I think being underpaid for a job, uh, and I know probably all of you sitting around here right now are thinking, uh, well, yeah, underpaid is what most of us are, and I think that's often true. I, mean, I think that uh, for a lot of us, you know, the sense that we have is uh, we, we certainly could do more for more wages if there was just or for more money rather if there was just a way to better utilize our skills um, but you know the market will bear will it will bear in a lot of in a lot of uh, employment situations and being underpaid is a great motivator right I mean when you want to make more money uh, it, it definitely is something that gets you going and makes you think. And I'm somebody who's had to hustle for every job he's ever gotten. I've had crappy jobs. I've been underpaid. I've been uh, treated very poorly in different positions. Uh, and it's very, it's it's a character building, I think is a nice way of putting it. But it creates uh, an, an economic desire in individuals that's really important in the marketplace. Um, so there's that aspect, but really more to the point here, I think, is that with progressives, the facts, the, uh, the results, the end state of many of their policies is irrelevant. It's not about results. It's about intentions. It's not about whether or not this will help workers in Minneapolis, uh, Seattle, Washington, DC, San Francisco. These are all places that have a $15 minimum wage now. Uh, what matters most to the city councils, uh, to the bureaucracies that push this on businesses, is that they are seen as being a friend to working people, to, to the working class. Uh, it's very Marxist in, it certainly has a, a Marxist uh, aspect to it um, because they're, at the heart of the Democratic Party is class struggle. That's how they've set this up. Uh, class struggle, uh, identity politics struggle from different groups in terms of ethnicity and sexual orientation, and that's all also very important to the Democratic Party. But class warfare is a, a central tenet of the modern Democratic Party, which is astonishing because you have at the top you have in- incredibly wealthy elitist Democrats running it, and they're supposed to be the ones so concerned about the. Uh, parts of the country and and people in this country who are the most dependent on government, right? So you have those who live lives almost entirely apart from government services, who are making the decisions about how much government service those who are dependent on government services 
uh, are how much they're getting. And then in between those two groups of people, which are very large groups of people, you have a lot of other folks who are primarily what I would call Republicans uh, who are trying to. And it's, it's not a question of income. It's just a question of outlook uh, and how you approach the citizens relationship to the state. Um, but the Democrat Party is all about posing as being posing as the great friend to workers. And so they're willing to sacrifice the actual financial prospects of workers in these cities to mean less take home pay in some cases to get them fired. I know some cases people will just make more money and they'll be very happy. I understand there there's an upside here, of course. Right. I mean, Democrats are not. Uh, as a party, they're not, well, you're going to say, Buck, that's wrong. Uh, they're not completely bereft of uh, upside, right? I mean, you know, more government spending, for example, more welfare programs, more infrastructure spending, whatever it may be. Some people always benefit from that. You know, qui bono, who benefits? Some people always benefit from Democrat policies. But on balance, they're often, of course, this is why I am a conservative, this is why I'm a Republican. On balance, they're often more harmful, and when you look at the benefits of it, they are outweighed by the costs. With minimum wage, that is, once again, the reality. But progressive ideology is so steeped in the perception of those implementing it, and there's always this distance from the people that are affected by the policies that's created by progressives telling themselves, well, maybe we're not doing it right, we just need to do it more. Or maybe there hasn't been enough time. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. It's never, we've tried this and it's failed. And all I have to do, I think, for more evidence of this is just look at cities run entirely by Democrats for, for decades. Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, D.C. I mean, you just go down the line, look at the problems that these cities have. Look at their unwillingness to change the public school system public sector unions, uh, pension programs, and the suffering they're willing to inflict on a lot of people based on these failed policies, and they will not change them. They are devoted to them because they are ideologues, because ultimately the policies that they push for those that they say are in need are really about those at the top feeling superior and feeling good about themselves. And if little people suffer, they don't really care. We'll be back, team, in just a few minutes talking barbecue. I'll be right with you. Well, Team Buck, since we're heading into the holiday weekend, uh, I thought it would only uh, fair to take a few moments to perhaps uh, talk about and maybe even share a little newly acquired knowledge about what will be affecting us all this weekend. I always say, we need to talk about the things that matter. Well, this weekend, for a lot of us, barbecue will matter. In fact, a great way to begin might be to ask you all, are you familiar where the term barbecue even comes from? I just learned in doing research for the show that barbecue is believed to come from the Spanish, who, upon arrival in the Caribbean during the period of the conquest of the New World, uh, saw the Native Americans uh, slow-cooking meat using a wooden platform to do it, and so they used the term Barbacoa, from the which is a Spanish version of the uh, Arawak native people's term uh, that they were using, uh, barabicu. So it's a Spanish version of a Native American term of cooking 
that now we also just have you know shortened as BBQ. Uh, but barbecue, which I know a lot of you listening to know much more about than I do, is delicious and amazing. We can all agree on that. But there's a lot of regional variability in it. So you can sort of pick and think about this weekend for Independence Day weekend, everybody. You can think about what you're going to be uh, eating and how you're going to prepare it. For example, if you want to go Memphis-style barbecue, Memphis is a town I've never even been to, then you want to go heavy on the pork. And Memphis-style is cooked in a big pit, and it has a... Uh, I was going to say watery. That's not really fair, but it's a a more um, liquidy tomato-based sauce with a tang to it, uh, as opposed to some other much thicker, smokier barbecue sauces. And if you're going to think of one dish that really signifies uh, how they do it in Memphis, uh, from my extensive barbecue research, uh, it would be pulled pork, which I love, by the way. I mean, I'm always... Pulled pork for me is kind of, I, I usually go number one. Uh, I, I'm definitely, I go I go brisket. That's my number one choice for barbecue. I just love uh, moist, well-prepared, well-seasoned brisket is is like the food of the gods uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I know there's another, I said that once, by the way, it's an expression people would say about like ancient Greece, like it's the food of the gods. Uh it, I don't mean that there's more than one God. Okay, <laughs> somebody got mad at me once for that. I'm like, it's an expression. I, I'm, a, I'm a monotheist. I'm a, I'm a Roman Catholic. It's okay. Anyway, uh, so the other versions of barbecue I want to talk to you a bit about North Carolina, and I know we have a wonderful uh, audience in North Carolina. We got a lot of Team Buck down in North Carolina, and there is a division, as I understand it, between the Eastern and the Lexington style barbecue in. North Carolina, and they're very into spice and vinegar rubs. So that's uh, that's that's a, a difference, a regional difference uh, in the barbecue there. South Carolina is uh, similar to North Carolina, but of course, I'm sure if you live in the other Carolina, you think it's your version's much better. Uh, they often though have a mustard-based sauce, and there's brown sugar with the vinegar, so it's a little sweeter. Uh, so South Carolina likes likes to get down that way. I didn't even know this until I was doing my uh, deep dive internet research for the weekend here because I'm gonna be doing. There's a lot of grilling where I'm going. Uh, so Kansas City is a place that has its own version of uh, or it's it's regional delicacy of barbecue. They're into the burnt ends, which are are generally not my, you know, that's their signature and that's not something I tend to order anywhere. And the sauce is a sweet molasses tomato style mixture. Um, that's a bit. That's a bit thick. So there's that. And now we get into some barbecue that I've actually sampled because I've been down to Hard Eight outside of Dallas and a few other locations in the Dallas area. Uh, you get into the Central Texas, and there uh, brisket is is the is the considered the signature dish. And they have some fantastic stuff down there. Hard Eight Barbecue outside of Dallas is one of my favorites. Um, and they're, look, it's they're all they're all about going going heavy with the meats there. Uh, briskets and ribs, very big in Dallas barbecue. I mean, sorry, in uh, Central Texas barbecue. I didn't know that there's East Texas barbecue, which uh, I am not particularly familiar with, um, but it has a little bit of a variation with uh, hot sauce thrown into the mix more. 
And then in Alabama, you get a little bit of, it's like a little bit of Texas thrown in with a little bit of Carolina. And pulled pork sandwiches are big there. Uh, so that's that's what my, my internet research on a few sites brought me to. So I'm, I'm trying to think of other, oh yes, uh, for me to throw on the grill over the weekend, uh, recommendations for inexpensive but tasty grill. You know, I, I sometimes think that throwing like a filet mignon on a really high, on the on the outside grill. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think that's not the way to go because um, you know the cooking temperature and everything can be a little off. It, you cook it also really fast. Uh, London broil is excellent. Uh, I highly recommend London broil. If you want to do skewers, beef heart is really good. Uh, and I'm of course. Really, first and foremost for me on the grill, I'm a, I'm a burger guy, um, and so I would I recommend those. I'm, I also think, by the way, flank steak. I tend to do flank steak in a pan, but flank steak can also be excellent out on out on the grill. Um, but I, I definitely recommend London broil if you're looking for an inexpensive, really quality red meat to uh, toss out on the grill. But I saw this thing from PETA that was talking about the like the ten big. It was a tweet from the people for the ethical treatment of animals, and it was the ten. Uh, biggest CO2 emitting foods you can eat. And it was like all the best meat, you know, it was all the, the really delicious stuff. And I thank them on Twitter for uh, giving me my grocery list for the weekend. Um, but anyway, uh, London broil, highly recommend that barbecue. I hope you enjoy that. Um, I don't have time to get into it, but mezcal. If you're thinking about a, uh, an adult beverage, mezcal is like a smokier tequila. It's becoming very popular these days. Uh, I'm planning on bringing some mezcal with me away for the weekend. So, I would uh, possibly throw that in the mix if I were you. I'd give that a shot. Um, and uh, it's it's now becoming uh, so popular that they're buying up all these mezcal, uh, these, these different mezcal uh, creators down in Mexico, uh, distilleries down in Mexico. Um, but that's maybe a discussion we'll have another time, my friends. Uh, I really do thank you, as always, for joining me here on the show. Uh, if you're listening, please do go on iTunes, click on Buck Saxon with America Now, and click subscribe uh, on iTunes. Uh, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app anytime you like as well. Uh, I have uh, pulled together a fantastic show for you. Of uh, It's really a, a mix of uh, some of the best stuff that we've got for the uh, 4th of July weekend. So if you want to tune in, you'll hear some really cool stuff. And I just hope you all have a, a great fun-filled, safe, uh, and overall fantastic Independence Day weekend celebration wherever you are. Um, Until then, team, as always, Shields High.